0: Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster. I also happen to be a Tony Bennett fan. I have been since 1973, when my Aunt May and Uncle Joe, who lived in London, gave me a bundle of albums they, for some reason, no longer listened to. One was called I Wanna Be Around. When I got home to Dublin and played the LP, I couldn't believe how staggeringly magnificent it was, as in every track, from the first The Good Life to the last Quiet Nights. I already had the Walker Brothers recording of one of the tracks on this LP, Once Upon a Summer Time," which I loved. But everything about Bennett's version was better, from the singing to the arrangement by Marty Manning. Soon afterwards, I began to track down as many Bennett LPs as were still in print. And more recently, I bought the CD box set of his entire set of albums up to a particular point. I also was lucky enough to meet and interview Tony Bennett no less than four times. Better still, I was blessed because during the first interview we did, Tony told me he was enjoying the conversation so much that I should join him over dinner in a Dublin restaurant called Cook's, where we could continue our chat. Even more amazingly, the man was happy to answer even questions about the involvement of the Mafia at the start of his career, even though this part of the conversation seemed to almost give a heart attack to the representative from CBS Records who was sitting at our table. In time. I'll base more podcasts on all of my interviews with Tony Bennett, and I probably will put them in a knee book. But this week, the first week of February 2021, the reason I'm returning to a tape of an interview we made for a radio show is because I was deeply saddened by the news that Tony Bennett has Alzheimer's disease. I decided I want to share with people the memories Tony shared with me. And I have to admit that his family finally going public on the fact that he has Alzheimer's puts a sting in the tail of Bennett at the start of this part of our chat, referring to things he says he will always remember. By the way, if you want to read the articles I wrote out of my conversations with Tony Bennett, check out
1: joejacksoninterviewer.com. I'll just say, I'm talking with Tony Bennett here in the Dublin Hotel. The song we just heard there, While the Music Plays On, was an important, an original, important artistic statement for you, choosing that song to record, wasn't it?
2: It, Well, it was because it was really um, uh, biographical uh, to to me, you know, uh, autobiographical, because uh, it's actually how I lived. I mean, I was a singing waiter in Astoria, Long Island, and uh, I love. I I really remember. I total recall on this one situation. I enjoyed that so much. I mean, I was only making fifteen dollars a weekend. Right. But I enjoyed that so much that I, I I made this statement to myself, this commitment, saying that I would, if if nothing ever happens to me when it comes to success or reaching the top, as they would say that I would be completely happy singing for the rest of my life, uh, doing the same thing, singing as a waiter in a club somewhere. But
1: wasn't it also the kind of complex uh, art song, leaning towards the kind of art song that the industry didn't particularly want you to be doing at the time?
2: Well, yes, because it was the beginning of bebop, and that was quite different and a, a, a tremendous deviation away from... The singers of the day, you know, the, the, uh, of Dick Hames and Bob Eberly, and, of course, the great Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and Billie Holiday, although Billie kind of led the way, but it was the beginning of bebop, and I was uh, 10, they were 10 years my elder,
1: right? so right.
2: I was, I grew up as a bebop singer, really, when I first started. I, right. I, I was very attracted, and I still am to this day, uh, by the creativeness of uh, bebop singers, which is a... Uh, bebop music, because it's a more mature kind of, uh, it's very intelligent. And a lot of, it always reminds me of, of the early uh, French painters uh, right. in the turn of the century where they call, the critics call them scribblers. Okay. And uh, bop sounds like that, you know. The, ba- the, the impressionists,
1: the, the sense of impressionism going from an impressionist sound to music. Yeah, and they
2: were called, they were called scribblers. The scribblers, uh, too. But now everybody adores Monet and Pissarro and all the great... Uh, uh now they look at it completely romantically. Uh, now, uh, I know as a musician that Bebop has a lot has an element in it that makes it last forever, which is soul, you know mm-hmm. a lot of love right, uh, right Charlie Parker had it, Dizzy Gillespie had it. and maybe once every five hundred years in the history of music. Some folks come along, certain musicians, and are are gifted, blessed with the fact that they create a new mode of music, maybe once every 500 years. And that's what these fellas did, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, uh, and Dizzy Gillespie. They were the main, uh, you know, the force.
1: I read Buddy Rich's comment at the top of the show. There, he said, "You has a two. Do You have, you have a That He called you Picasso, Rembrandt, and pop art all in one. Is that a little yeah. OTT, or is, is that?
2: Well, you know that. You know this business of my peers, uh, you know, eulogizing me is is quite phenomenal. Because I mean, Sinatra calling me the best singer he ever heard and his favorite singer. Here's this guy with the best uh, musical ears in the world when it comes to popular music. Sinatra. And for him, from my humble beginnings, to call me uh, his very favorite, when everybody in the in the entertainment world would hope something like that would happen to them, uh, it it would take me a lifetime to digest that compliment. And then, It created a a tornado (laughs) mentally for me because I had to live up to these accolades from Judy Garland and from Bing Crosby and Buddy Rich.
1: So it was a a double edged
2: sword. It was a double edged sword, but it worked out for the best because it created something that I didn't have before, and that was discipline. All right. You know, I had to live up to this accolade night after night, and finally I said, hey, I better just show up. Why
1: did you not have discipline before that? What was. Because I was
2: just, I was actually just having fun. I was a young boy and I just I, bebop was just supposed to be very relaxed and All right. and intelligent but yet you know some nights you make it some nights you don't and so you needed I, to
1: impose form on it so form. yeah we
2: just had to be disciplined you know you had to, uh, you know it, it's like uh, the, the late uh, Bobby Hackett the great cornet player and uh, great musician he was Glenn Miller's guitar player right. originally and he gave me the best lesson he said when you don't do your scales he said the first the first night you know it. The second night, the musicians know it. And the third night, the public knows it.
1: Right, and the fourth night, so, there's no fourth night. There's no, you get canceled. <laughs> Could you go back to your beginnings? I mean, an Irishman, James McWinnie, was very influential in introducing you to the world of the visual arts, which you then translated mm-hmm. into music.
2: Isn't that- well, he was just so wonderful. I, I can't tell you, he was the greatest Irishman I've ever met, and there's a lot of great Irishmen. But he uh, he was a teacher, and he lived in in... Uh, you know one of these houses where uh, it was during the depression and we all lived in the projects mm-hmm. and uh, he saw me sketching in the street and uh, with chalk and I saw the shadow uh, covering my sketch and I, I turned around his big handsome guy who looked handsomer than John Kennedy you know he said he said I like what you're doing there I said thank you I couldn't believe it I was you know 14 15 at the time and he said, I'm a teacher of art, and uh, he said, but uh, he said, if you'd like, um, I live in your building, he said, if you'd like, I go watercoloring every weekend, he said, and you might want to come along with me. Well, I was so flattered, you know, to have a grown guy like that and an art teacher, you know, is telling me to take a, a, a journey with him. And we went, and to this day, I just sat under this willow tree with him, and did a cityscape of uh new york city and uh i couldn't believe how wonderful he painted and to this day i i I still paint watercolor and when that brush touches the paper i think of james mcweeney and he's just uh, he taught me about leprechauns and and all the songs that his mother taught him he's put them on tape for me and he, he he lives in La Jolla now, which is a beautiful area in the United States, and right. I'm, I'm, he's he's <coughs> uh, excuse me in charge of all the poets of California, right, right, and, uh, quite retired, but yet with, with the poets.
1: You also said uh, the last time we talked that when you uh, when you put your voice to tape or to a song, you also try to recapture that sense of light and joy that that's very much what you strive for in your music as opposed mm-hmm. to Sinatra who we talked about goes for the dark end of the street and the albums like no one cares you tend to go for more positive
2: well you see every color. artist is different I mean you know he's he's I still consider him the king of the of our generation of, of the entertainment world because before him there was Al Cholson and he was the king Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll always Sinatra will always be known as the as the most uh, strongest force. Uh, you know he had this uh, teenage following and all the Bobby Soxes, and everybody's kind of imitated it right up to the Rolling Stones and then uh, Bruce Springsteen and everybody tries to gather up as many teenagers as possible. But I must say that his music uh, created was the nicest service he ever gave any any young people right because it was completely romantic it was based on Ravel and Debussy music and and uh, it, it was is one of uh, uh, what I would call the civilized music you know
1: right. adapted from all that. But didn't he go... You went more for maybe Ravel and Debussy and he went for Tchaikovsky and Wagner and that really black romantic stuff. You don't, your music, listening to your show well, last night, you, you tend not to go. You stay on the sunny side of the street to call a title, yeah. don't you? Well, yeah, I,
2: I believe in optimism. I mean, no. Oscar Hammerstein did the same thing, you know, he, whereas Larry Hart, uh, the composer, uh, was brilliant and no one wrote better lyrics than, uh, than, than Larry Hart, but he was... Uh, Educated and and cynical, you know, and uh, it was was clever and humorous. It was wonderful I mean you can't get better rhymes and uh, More talent come but then Oscar Hammerstein came along and he just his philosophy was one of optimism You know why not give people a little hope in the world, you know, it's bad enough that it's It's quite tragic and uh, all these um, Unpredictable things that happen to people right but to it's, I just consider it a noble job to go out and, uh, for 90 minutes, make people forget their problems. And well, it's I, uh, just pockets of
0: relief uh, for everybody. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. And as I said earlier, if you want to read any of the Tony Bennett articles I wrote, check out my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.